take our Bibles this morning, go to 1 Samuel chapter 7, and um, just want to thank everybody for all the work you do around here. I was people here late last night cleaning, doing all kinds of stuff, and I want you to know the Lord is not unrighteous, that He should forget your labor and love, but I want you to know that I appreciate it and notice it also. And uh, preaching the Word of God is um, a great responsibility, it's a great <clears throat> great privilege, and, um, and it's uh, a great calling. And I, I, as I, we haven't gotten to this in our sermon prep and delivery class yet, but one of the things that I have for years done is I try to alliterate my outlines. I think in some ways it makes them more memorable. Um, and uh, in order to do that, I often use a thesaurus. And uh, I was in a used bookstore recently, and I saw an old thesaurus that I thought, you know, this would be helpful. So I bought it, and uh, I had to say that as I was looking through it, I was really disappointed. It well, didn't seem to be a, the greatest thesaurus. And in fact, um, it wasn't only terrible, uh, it was terrible. <laughs> All right. Either, either you need to know what a thesaurus is, or I need to be able to deliver the punchline better. First uh, Samuel 7. Did I say that already? All right. One more. A bear walks into a diner, and he says to the waitress, I'll have a burger and... and fries. And she says, why the big pause? And he shrugs and says, I don't know, I was born with them. <laughs> well, it can only, hey, it, it can only get better from here, right? If you set low expectations at the very beginning, then you can just jump right over that hurdle and everybody be like, that was good. Now, the whole, the whole thing about the bear and the paws is to illustrate what we're going to be looking at today, at least... Uh, a little bit of a stretch, frankly, but that's okay. Um, in the Christian life, there is a gap, or if you will, a pause between what we are and what we ought to be. And uh, sometimes uh, in our life, that pause, that great, that gap, if you will, gets gets bigger. And um, when that gap is increasing, we need to take inventory before it becomes irreparable. And um, I'm just going to tell you that I'm going to preach to myself today, and you can listen. And if it's helpful to you, then, then great. First um, Samuel chapter 7 is uh, the record of Israel recovering the ark. And uh, we have 2,000 years of church history behind us now, and uh, we can analyze to some degree the moving of God's spirits at different times. And uh, there was examples of times where God's Spirit moved and there was great revival where whole cultures were changed through the preaching of the Word of God. In the United States, we had the Great Awakening before the Revolutionary War. We had the Second Great Awakening before the Civil War. But uh, corporate communal revival begins with personal revival. There was an evangelist of years uh, past named uh, Gypsy Smith. And... He had preached many meetings that turned into 
large revivals where the Lord moved and lives were changed, etc. And as he was an old man, somebody went to him and then said, Sir, how do you start a revival? What is the beginning of a revival? And his answer was this, go home and lock yourself in your own room. Put your own knees down in the middle of your own floor and draw a chalk mark around all of yourself and then ask God to start the revival inside that chalk mark and pray until he's answered that prayer and then the revival will be on. The question I'm asking today is how can we as God's people renew our passion in our faith. Sometimes we stop growing, maybe because the cost is too high, maybe because there's disappointment, maybe because there's opposition, maybe because there's sin, maybe because there's all of those things. And we tell ourselves, well, I've grown to this point, so if I stop here, I can kind of hold on and stay there. But the reality is, like it is true in almost every area of our life, we're either going to be going forward or we're going to be going backward. The currents of the world will pull us backward. The problem with those of us that are Bible-believing Christians when we get in that condition is that we still know what we knew before. And maybe this is true for some of us here this morning. We know what we used to know, but the joy is gone. The excitement is gone. The singleness of purpose, of heart, is gone. The vision is gone. And this is the situation we find Israel in here in 1 Samuel chapter 7. The Bible says, starting in verse number 1, And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it, into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. Now, let me remind you, that's not where the ark belonged. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. I want to make three very basic observations here in this text and, uh, and some application to our life this morning. The first thing in verses number 1 and 2 is that Israel came to the truth the truth was true before they accepted it, but it was still Amen. true nonetheless. And they came to what I'll call this morning a solemn realization. Solemn realization. Now, if you understand the Old Testament, in the Old Testament and under the law, God created an ark, and in that ark, he, 
had them put some mana and, and other things. But the Ark was a visible representation of the presence of God. And uh, in the New Testament, we met, touched on this a little bit in Sunday school, if you've been born again by trusting Christ as your Savior, then you are the ark. You are the tabernacle. You are the possessor of the very presence of God. The Bible says that He'll dwell in us and we'll be His people. And we will dwell in Him. And so what in Israel was a picture and what was a type and what was a physical manifestation of something uh, that they could go and see for us is a spiritual truth. And here Israel had, had foolishly, you know the story, Eli's sons, Eli was the priest, and they, and they thought that the ark was a, uh, like a Ouija board and they could take it down to the battle and God would be forced to make them win the battle, but they lost the battle because they were doing the wrong thing the wrong way at the wrong time. And then they lost the ark. Now, we as God's children, in this dispensation, if you will, we can lose the presence of God. So the first thing that they realized is that they were God's people. But they were without God's presence. They were God's people without God's presence. The Philistines took the ark... And they said, hey, here's a religious artifact. And we've got a temple that we keep all of our religious stuff in. And our statues and our things that we worship. And so let's go and park this guy in this temple where we keep our religious artifacts. And they had a chief god whose name was Dagon. And, and uh, having God's ark and God's presence in the same place of the idols was very difficult for the idols. Every morning the Philistines would come in and check on their idols because, of course, they had to dust their gods. They had to vacuum their gods. They had to do all those things. And every morning they came in and Dagon was falling over on his face in front of the ark and he started losing body parts and so on and so forth. And, uh, and so they said, hey, we've got to get rid of this thing. And they tied the ark to two dairy cows and it ended up here at kirjath Jerem, not where it belonged. So you have God's people trying to function without God's presence. And if you take your Bible, go to Revelation chapter 3. That is exactly what the Lord told us was going to happen in the day and age that we live in. God's people trying to function, but without God's presence. Now, the nation of Israel finally came to the recognition, to the realization, if you will, that this was true. But they had, they had gone many years, maybe either in ignorance or in denial about the consequences of losing the ark. In Revelation chapter 3, we're warned that there's going to be a day where the church is going to be literally without the presence of Jesus Christ. But they're not even going to discern that. They're not going to know that. And even worse, they're not even going to care about it. In Revelation chapter 3, the Bible says, about the church at Laodicea, starting in verse number 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans writes, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot. So because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich, and increase with goods and have need of nothing. 
And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In verse number 17, you've got a collective self-deception going on here. In verse 18, the Lord says this, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in a uh, fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You have a church that's God's people professing to do the work of God and functioning as the people of God, but their God is not even in their assembly anymore. He's outside knocking on the door. Now, he's got a promise to them, and I want us to hold on to this promise. And The promise is this. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. And so the Lord is saying, look, here's the problem and here's the solution. To the people of Israel, they're realizing their problem and God is going to give them the solution. And to you and I this morning, he's illustrating the problem and he's offering the solution. The church at Laodicea thought that they were okay having church without Jesus. And probably in this case, too late, they're going to realize that they, they're not. But I want us to make a personal application to that this morning. I want us to ask ourselves the question, have I lost what God intends for me to be? Have I lost what God intends for me to have? And if so, am I willing to do one thing, get it back? Harry Morehouse was a, a well-known preacher of his day and uh, he was known for preaching revivals and he was known for having uh, meetings that had great fruitfulness he would go and he'd preach and there would be multitudes of people saved lives changed communities transformed and uh, and he was uh, preaching in one city in the United States and uh, there was no revival nothing was happening and uh, he felt like he was running into a brick wall and so he had the men that were with him and, and they were fasting and they were praying and they were begging God uh, for, for fruit. They were, they, were, they were confused about what was going on even. They were getting a little bit nervous about it. And uh, the harder they tried, the more they prayed, the more they fasted. Uh, it seemed like the worse the results got. And finally one day Morehouse was walking around the city and he saw a big banner put up. Come here. Henry Morehouse, the greatest preacher in the world. And he said, that's the problem. That's the problem. That's why there's no revival. Harry Morehouse, the most famous preacher in the whole world. So he went to the people that were in charge of promoting the committee. He said, brethren, I understand now why there's no revival. You see, you're promoting me as the greatest of this and the greatest of that. No wonder that God can't work because you're trying to give credit to a man. <clears throat> I'm just a poor, simple, humble servant preaching a glorious gospel. I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Let's put the focus on Him and not on me. And this 
transformation of intention cannot happen only in a revival, but can happen in our own individual lives as well. Like the church at Laodicea, like the nation of Israel, we can shut God out of our lives and try to go on without His presence. Now, if you take your Bible, go to Judges chapter 16, please. Just a few pages to the left, right there before 1 Samuel. Judges chapter 16. Here's the results. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. The key there is through Christ. Obviously, we understand that. If we function as God's people without God's presence, then it's not going to be long before we try to function as God's people without God's power. The church of Laodicea lost God's presence. They lost God's power. And because they were using the wrong metric to measure things, they didn't even know it. They didn't discern that they were just doing religion on their own, in their own way. And it was all just a show. Uh, you know somebody else that happened to? A man named Samson. Samson knew what it was like to have the power of God fall upon him. He was able to accomplish great and mighty feats of strength because of God's power. But there came a day when through presumptuous sin that he lost God's power. And there's a very haunting postscript to that. If you look at Judges 16 and verse number 20, the Bible says, and, and she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And look at this. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. He thought, well, this is what I used to do. This is how it used to work. And if I do this today, then the power of God will be there in reserve and I'll be able to be victorious. But he didn't even know that the power that had enabled him to be successful in the past because of his current condition, his current actions, had departed from him, and he was going out there to meet an enemy that in this case was far stronger. And it brought him into lifelong bondage. God's people can become without God's power. The nation of Israel was not just without a box. They weren't just without an artifact. They weren't just without a thing that they liked or that they wanted. Uh, they were without the presence and the power of the God that had brought them into, the, into being as a nation. I told you this story before how several decades ago at the Rose Parade there was a beautiful float that was going down Colorado Boulevard there in Pasadena on a splendid sunny Los Angeles New Year's morning the whole nation shivering, watching, and being envious of us. And all of a sudden, that float sputtered and stopped right in the middle of Colorado Avenue. The whole parade was held up until somebody could get a can of gas because the float had just run out of gas. And the irony is the float was representing the Standard Oil Company, <laughs> company that had the, one of the vastest oil resources was the one that owned the truck that ran out of gas. And I'll tell you the truth, when we run out of gas, which we sometimes do, it's probably more ironic than that. 
Now, here's the thing. The Christian life is more than you and I can do. Didn't Jesus say, without me, you can do nothing? And so if you and I are living the Christian life in our own power, then we're not living the Christian life at all. We need God's power daily. Martha was cumbered about doing all kinds of things. She was getting frustrated. She was getting angry. She was getting envious. And Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And for some of us, we would say Martha was the one that was in the right. She was the one doing something. But what Mary understood that Martha didn't understand was that there's a time and a place for sitting at the feet of Jesus and for being empowered for the service that comes from that. So the first thing that happened here in the nation of Israel, they had a solemn realization. And the realization was that they were God's people. They had been put into the land by a miraculous, powerful hand of God, just like you and I have been saved by the miraculous, powerful hand of God. But they came to the truth, and the truth was that they were God's people without God's presence, and because they were God's people without God's presence, they had become God's people without God's power. And then if you look back at our text in verse number 3, Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtoreth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So in this case, the man of God stands before the people of God, and he says, since we have just realized the problem that we have, I want to make a very serious request of you. I want to ask you if you're ready to get things back. And, and here in church, it's easy for us to say, of course. Yeah, of course I want the ark back. Of course I want what I used to have back. But I'll tell you, sometimes that's a difficult question. And it's something that shouldn't be considered lightly and answered lightly and frivolously. But I want to tell you some things that I know to be true, even though sometimes we don't feel like it's true. Number one is this. If you're without the ark of God in your heart and in your life, God is willing to restore that. The church of Laodicea, which was offensive to God, offensive to Christ, he said, I'll spew you out of my mouth. In other words, we could certainly say that what he's saying is that when I observe what you're doing in my name, it makes me want to puke. Those people that had presumed in his name, that had blasphemed his name, that had... Uh, uh, taken all of the wrong signs and said, these are the evidence of God's blessing upon us. They were wrong about everything. Those people, if they had simply listened and heard and opened the door, Christ was willing to come in. Amen. He was willing to heal them. He was willing to sup with them. He was willing to fellowship with them. If the nation of Israel here in 1 Samuel 7, if they, had, if they had simply put away the idols, God was willing. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I tell you this morning that God is willing? So what that means is that the real question is, am I willing? Am I willing? And sometimes we get wounded along the way. And I think of that father who had the sick child at home and he came to the Lord and he said, Lord, would you heal my, would you heal my child? There's no hope. We've, we've done everything that we can do and there's just nothing left to do. And the Lord said, if you believe, all things are possible. And he said, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. We get there sometimes. Yeah, I believe, but I, I'm having a hard time believing. I've tried, and I've seen, and I've hoped, and I've prayed, and I've expected a miracle, and it's never happened. And I'm going to make the conclusion that, Lord, there's nothing wrong with you, and there's nothing wrong with your word, so there's got to be something wrong with me. And that begs the question, am I willing? Am I willing to really change? 1 Samuel 7, verse 3. Am I really willing to have things be different? Am I really willing to be the living sacrifice that I'm called to be? And, and don't answer that question rashly or superficially because I'm going to tell you that probably someday in your life, the cost for answering that question is going to be more than you can this morning consider. The question isn't whether God is able. The question isn't whether God is willing. The question is, am I willing? Many Christians have forsaken the mysterious divine splendor for the known temporal stupor. The question to Israel in this day, the question to the church at Laodicea, the question to us is, are you really willing or are you going to continue to just settle? Are you okay with being God's people without God's power? Are you okay with being God's people without God's presence? So when Samuel goes to the people in verse number three, he's challenging them to their very core. We want the blessings of God. We want the protection of God. We want the peace of God that passeth all understanding that we're promised. And the only thing that's keeping that from you today is, am I willing? Now, the reason we're using this as our text is because the answer for these people was yes. If you look at verses 3 to 6, when they had a sincere revelation, realization, and then Samuel asked them a serious, gave them a serious request, they responded with this, sincere repentance. They responded with sincere repentance. Sunday school asked her class one day, 
What is repentance? And the little boy said, it's being sorry for your sins. And then a little girl added this, when she said, it's being sorry enough for your sins to quit. All of us have been at the point where we have been sorry for the consequence of our sins. We've seen, you know what, that didn't turn out so well for me. That stinks. I wish it didn't happen that way. And, and we realized that we didn't really mean it because we weren't sorry enough to quit. We thought, well, maybe if I sin the same way, but I kind of twist it 10 degrees, it'll have a different result. But here what we see in Israel is we see people that come to their end of themselves and they respond with sincere repentance. In verse number six, let me give you the formula. Number one, it's, this isn't rocket science. In verse number six, I need to first of all confess my sin. If you see at the end of the verse, they fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. That's simple. But it's got to be sincere. How many of you have ever been sharing the gospel with somebody? And, and by the way, I believe this with all my heart. You can't get somebody saved that's not lost. And so without dealing with the fact that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, then you're giving the good news to somebody who doesn't need good news. And, and, and you, you say, you know, here's Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And uh, the way I usually ask the question is, if God, who knows everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, and everything you've ever thought, was to examine your life according to His holy word, would He find you guilty or innocent of breaking His law? Now the answer for all of us very clearly is guilty. But how many of you have heard somebody say something like this? Well, all of us are guilty. Well, all of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short. And that's all true. But you're not going to be judged as part of a collective. You're going to be judged as an individual for your sin. And that same thinking can enter into our lives as Christians. Now, fortunately, if we've trusted Christ as our Savior, we've owned our personal responsibility for sin as it relates to eternity, and we've accepted Christ's payment uh, in exchange for our wretched sin. But that same collectivist, that same idea that I'm not individually responsible for my choices and for my sins because, after all, nobody's perfect. If you respond to somebody, or the, whether it's the Holy Spirit or somebody else, uh, bringing in love uh, your sin to your heart and your response is, yeah, well, what about you and what you've done? And what about what somebody else does? What about what somebody else thinks? You're engaging in that same type of thinking. It doesn't matter what somebody else does. It doesn't matter what somebody else says. What matters is I have sinned against the Lord. No excuse. When I was an officer training in the military, there's only three answers we were allowed to give. Yes, sir. No, sir. 
And I do not know, but I will find out, sir. Only three answers. At the judgment seat of Christ, you think it's only going to be two. Yes, sir, no, sir. So we've got to own it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. We know that our sin blocks fellowship with our Savior. We know that confession and forsaking our sin restores that fellowship. Can I just tell you that with God, even if you're, even if you're so shallow that you need to create some grand impression in front of other people, even if you believe your own social media posts, With God, can I encourage you just to be real? I mean, doesn't he know everything anyway? You're not impressing him. You're not confusing him. You're not surprising him. Can I just give, it, give us two thoughts about confession? Number, and by the way, I know that all the answers are already in your bulletin, so I didn't put the blanks in there, so you all know where we're going. But just pretend to be surprised as we get to the next point, okay? <laughs> Number one... Uh, be frank with yourself. Be frank. There was a, uh, a man that got a, a new job and uh, he was meeting his coworkers. And uh, in the discussion of meeting and understanding what you had done and all that stuff, uh, they had found that he had worked uh, for a very successful company before that was in the same industry. And uh, uh, not very often did somebody leave that company to join this other company. So one of the new coworkers said, hey, Hey, Ted, why did you leave your last job at that place? And he said, well, it was something my boss told me one day. And they're like, oh, interesting. Here's a little bit of dirt. And they said, well, what was that? And he said, well, he told me, you're fired. <laughs> Be frank. Be honest. God's not, God doesn't believe your internal or external PR campaign. Just be real. Be frank and then be factual. Now, if somebody does something to you and they come up to you and they say, Andre, I'm going to use you since you are, you're not, you're dumb enough to sit on the front row here. <laughs> so I insult him. And, and I mean, they're, there's a lot, of, a lot of opportunity here. So I insult Andre, right? And then, you know what? He's mad at me, and so I come up to him and say, hey, look, dude, I'm sorry for, like, whatever you're mad about. Get over it. Right? Now, now you can be all pious and all, well, we're supposed to forgive as Christians. Right? You can be that way. Or you can be reality, and you'd be like, Stuff it up your nose, right? That's your, that's what, is that fair? Yeah, that's what he would say, stuff it up your nose. And, um, and when we go to God with that same attitude, God's response probably isn't all that different. All right, Lord, yeah, you know what? I messed up and I'm sorry. Get over it. Be specific. You know one of the ways that you can tell the Holy Spirit's conviction versus the satanic uh, condemnation is that the Spirit of God is specific. This is what you've done wrong, and this is the solution. 
and I want you to come back. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God's spirit, God's conviction is, is, is a point of healing. Satan's condemnation is, do you see what you just did? You're worthless, you're worthless, nobody wants you, God can't use you, you're done, you're finished, you're over. Lay down, suck your thumb, and just die already. Well, when God's Spirit convicts us specifically, can I suggest that we need to get right specifically? Lord, you know what? I've done this. I'm guilty. I, I am the man. I've done it. And I did it because I didn't care what you thought at the time. I did it because I wanted to do what I wanted to do the way I wanted to do it, and I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And with your help, I'm not gonna do it again. And that's where verse four comes in in our text, where not only do we confess our sins, But the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtoreth and serve the Lord only, but I need to, I need to cast out my sin. Now, now let, me, let me help you understand something, I believe. The Bible says a just man falleth seven times, the number of completion, and what? And riseth again. All of us in this room, whether it's some gross you know, sin that's public and open and everybody be like, oh my goodness, what is that? Or whether it's a sin that's hidden in the hearts, have fallen and fallen and fallen and fallen and we've repented and we've repented and we've repented and we said, I'm not going to do it again, I'm not going to do it again, I'm not going to do it again, and then we've done it again. And the difference between a hypocrite and an inconsistent Christian who's operating in good faith is a hypocrite accepts his sin and expects God to accept his sin and his life is going in the wrong direction and he's saying it's going in the right direction. All of us are going to fall. But if you get up and go the right direction, the Bible says that you're acting in a just way. You might fall more than the guy next to you. You might have more blood running down your knees. You might have road rash on your face. But if you get up and you get back in the race, then the Bible says that's how a just man acts. If you fall down and you stay down, or you go back, well, that's not how a just man acts. Somebody said if we put off repentance another day, we have more to repent of and a day less to repent in. In his book, I Surrender, Patrick Morley writes, the church's integrity problem is in the misconception that, quote, that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. That's the church of Laodicea. He goes on to say it's revival without reformation and without repentance. In order for us to not only confess our sin but to cast it out, we need to change our minds. A young girl had ran away from her home 
to get away from the instability of her home life. And, and she found herself living in a life of sin, a life of danger, a life of, of self-loathing even. And a friend had made photographs of this young girl's mother with the caption, two words, come back. And one night she was entering into a place of sin and she saw the picture of her mother with the words, come back. And she decided to do just that. And she ran home and, and she touched the latch of the door. And when she touched the latch of the door, the door immediately opened. And on the other side of that door, her mother's face greeted her and said, My dear, that door has never been locked since the day you left. I believe that God's door of love is never locked. We need to change our mind. We need to change our heart. During the First World War, a true story of a woman that lost her husband and her only son in the war. And she was especially bitter because her neighbor had five sons and lost none of them. And one night in the depths of her grief, she dreamt that an angel came to her bed and said, if you could have your son back for 10 minutes, what 10 minutes of his life would you choose? When he was a little baby, when he was a dirty-faced little boy, when he was a schoolboy, when he finished high school, when he, when he was a soldier going off to war, what 10 minutes would you want back? And the mother dreamt that she said, give me the 10 minutes back when he was a little boy. And he clenched his fists at me and said, I hate you. I hate you. But a few minutes later came back with his dirty face stained with tears and said, Mama, I'm sorry. I'll never talk to you that way again. I'll never be mean to you like that again. Please forgive me. I love you with all my heart, Mommy. She said, let me have him back then. I never loved him more than when he changed his heart and came back. Bitterness victim mentality, accusing God for our choices and the consequences of them can keep us from changing our hearts. And also we need to change our behavior. I'm going to do right. I'm going to stop doing wrong. You know, we teach our Sunday school kids that song. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little feet, where you go. We need to confess our sin. We need to cast out our sin. And then in verse 3 of our text, we see a commitment of self. Samuel said, if you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts... 
I think it's reasonable to be a little bit of concern when somebody professes salvation but never commits to service. Doesn't have a desire to be a witness. Doesn't have a desire to teach a class. Doesn't have a desire to serve others. When Paul got saved, his first question was, Lord, what will thou have me to do? When the maniac of Gadara, that man that was demon-possessed with 2,000 demons and naked and cutting himself and terrorizing an entire community, when he got saved, he said, Lord, let me go with you. I've seen it over and over again. When somebody gets right with the Lord, he can't do enough, whether it's vacuum the church or clean the toilets or go soul winning or study or reach others. There has to be a personal commitment. In verses 5 and 6, we see the commitment to the assembly of God's people. Can I tell you, we can't have personal revival without honoring God's house. Revival drives us to seek God's people and instruction from God. We see also in the same verses a commitment to holiness. Doesn't the Bible say, be ye holy, for I am holy? Repentance leads to a change. In Psalm 42, David said, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so, my, so panteth my soul after thee. O God, my soul first thirsteth for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? Many years ago, there was an open air revival meeting and as the tent meeting was coming to a close the preacher was asking for testimonies while he was asking for testimonies there was a skeptic that was passing through the congregation there and was listening as a man gave a testimony and said that he had been a drunkard and a profligate that he had sold his own daughter's clothing to get enough money to get a drink to get him through one night. And, and then through the preaching of the word of God, he had gotten saved and his life was completely transformed. And as this testimony was being given, the skeptical man stopped and listened. Listen how Jesus had wrought a miracle and saved this man's soul and changed his life. The skeptic with his arms folded. And his face contorted into a scowl, said this out loud, That's nothing more than a dream. Religion saving a man in this manner, it's just a dream, a mere dream and nothing more. No one answered him, but God had a way of dealing with him. Because among, among the listeners was a little girl that was about 10 years old. And she had known the misery of a drunkard's home. She heard the remark of that skeptical man and she went up to him and said this, please sir, if it's only a dream, please don't wake him, that's my daddy. It's not enough that we know the ark exists. We've got to want it back. 